0: Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Holding the Ladder in Sport and Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Tim Rice. This week, in honor of St. Patrick's Day, I thought it was only fitting to have an Irish guest on the podcast. This week's guest is Sinead Gordon. Sinead is currently the Director of Governance and Strategy with Sport Ireland in the Republic of Ireland. She has a wealth of experience that she's going to share with you today, and I know that you will get a lot from it. She has done it all, and I believe that you'll gain so much from this episode. So I hope you enjoy over the next few minutes. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the Holding the Ladder in Sport and Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Tim Rice, and with me from the Republic of Ireland, Sinead Gordon. Sinead, welcome to the podcast, and we're really excited to learn more about you and your background in sport. So welcome.
1: Thanks, Tim. Delighted to be able to join you on the podcast and uh, delighted to be able to hopefully offer some insights to your listeners uh, in relation to um, my story around uh, sport and leadership.
0: That's awesome. And uh, talking about your story, give us a little bit about yourself. Tell us a little bit about kind of your background and and uh, where you've come from.
1: Okay. Well, I think um, I know you've got a mixed a mixed audience and quite an international audience. So your your American audience will be able to tell that. Uh, hopefully, from the accent, that I'm Irish. And I know you've a couple of other Irish uh, contingents in here that are contributors. Uh, but for me, I, I was born and raised in a little village in the west of Ireland, as we, as we like to say, next stop, Boston. So County Mayo, uh, hanging out there on the edge of the Atlantic. Uh, and I come from a farming background, uh, but it's a place that I've not lived in since I was 17, since I went off to college uh, or university. Um, but it is still absolutely what I, where I call home it's where my parents still live it's where the home house still is and actually two of my sisters two of my three sisters that i have live there very close to home um so kind of a very rural upbringing that i had but a, a an upbringing where sport played a very integral role and our national sport in particular gaa so Gaelic games uh, i played Gaelic football growing up as my first sport um, and I took up basketball as kind of what was my second sport when I went to uh, secondary school or high, the equivalent to, to your high school. Um, I call myself a sports management professional, but I probably don't yet have the lengthy careers that some of your guests on the podcast have had. Uh, however, I have worked in or been involved in sport for the past 20 years or so, and I crafted out a career in this sector um, following um, a degree in sports science that I um, achieved through the University of Limerick um, where I graduated in the class of 2002 and when I started out with a sports science degree uh, it was earned at a time when there was not much call for people in Ireland with a sports science degree and actually Limerick was the only university or the only college in Ireland at the time that offered Kind of a couple of courses, undergrad courses for people interested in sport. So Limerick was my first two choices. And the first option was a uh physical education degree, teaching degree, and the second option was sports science. Uh I narrowly missed out. I don't know if you guys know, there's a kind of point system around the Leaving Cert in Ireland, where especially for the um courses that have a lot of interest in only a few places so you're talking about 30 places in each of those courses in Limerick. Uh, it's a points-based system in terms of how you do in your leave insert uh, or your, your final exams in secondary school um, as to what college or what university you get into and I missed out on PE teaching. It was my first choice but I got offered uh, sports science which was only Five points in the difference so still actually a difficult course to get into but uh, the running joke in Limerick at the time among the kind of what we affectionately called the PES department the PE and sports science PESS department was that um, sports science was that course for uh, those people who weren't fortunate enough, fortunate enough to get into PE and it was to set us up for future careers in McDonald's which was the running joke at the time, because uh, there was no identified career yet in sports science. It kind of was an unknown field and it it raised a lot of eyebrows. And especially, I would say, even within my family and my parents and kind of close family, you know, where the normal degrees you did, people understood teaching and arts and, you know, science degree people didn't understand sports science or what what were you going to be or what were you going to do with a degree in sports science. But I persevered anyway with my degree in sports science and had four great years in Limerick. And it was kind of my first time to obviously live away from home and all the good stuff that goes with going to college and uh, experiencing, you know, standing on your own two feet and having to do your own thing. And I feel sorry right now for... Um, the people that are going to college during these COVID restrictions time because I really feel like I look back on that first year second year in college and god what an eye-opener it was in terms of coming from like a farming rural background to the bright lights of Limerick I had never been to Limerick before until I went to college so it was a completely new experience for me the the, you know uh, I remember driving down my mom drove me down and my two sisters were with me and we passed Galway which is en route to Limerick and Galway would have been an hour from where I was at home so my mother was crying at the time going I don't know why you didn't pick Galway why couldn't you just go to college in Galway it's so much closer and and like Limerick is a five-hour trip from Mayo and you know it was at a stage where okay the roads are better and everything now but By the time we got to Limerick, I think we were all crying as to why I was going so far away to go to college and how would I come back and when would I I get back? And I do that. That memory sticks with me Uh, in terms of actually, I think some of the characteristics you think about now as to, you know, even being able to make that leap and go someplace that nobody else was going or nobody else was doing. Um so after after college, uh, like the saying went, uh, McDonald's were hiring, but I wasn't uh, looking for a job there. Um, and equally, there wasn't actually very many opportunities in Ireland. So I decided to take a, a gap year, which ended up being three gap years. Then I went to Australia on a on a working holiday visa. And um, while I was going to figure out what I was going to do with my degree and you know, get away from actually listening to the mantra of being, you need to go back to college. You should have done teaching. I don't know why you didn't do teaching. You'd make a great teacher. Um, so I went off to Australia anyway to find myself and to, um, you know, forget about kind of not being able to get a, deg- a job in your chosen field. Um, three great years in Australia and lots of interesting roles from sport to non-sport roles. It really was just a learning experience but I came back and I got what I call kind of my first break into the sports sector uh, when I came back from Australia so I was I was three years out of college at that stage and uh, it was with Basketball Ireland the national governing body for sport that's who I credit my first kind of breakthrough in terms of getting getting a job in the sports sector and what an eye-opener it was in terms of sports administration. So we had covered it a little bit in college, but you hadn't really got into it until you're working full time for a, a national governing body and it's your job. And I did that role and different roles within the organization for about four years. And Basketball Ireland went through a tough time kind of at the end of that. And it was at a time where I also was considering, you know, you don't get a job for life anymore. So I was considering what else, what else am I going to do? what other opportunities are out there? And it coincided with the one big sporting event that everybody's eyes are on every four years, uh, the Olympic Games and the Paralympic Games. And I saw a job advertised for London 2012, which was the technical operations manager for basketball and wheelchair basketball based in London, a two-year contract. And I kind of was like, I got to put my name in the, the ring for that one. Uh, I didn't actually ever think that I would get it because I was like, you know, you kind of doubt yourself sometimes, even though you've probably done a good job in the role you've been in. I still had only done work my first job and this would be my second real job, as I was calling them. Uh, but I was lucky enough to get that opportunity and it took me down a different path for quite a number of years I moved to London and I, I, I'm reflecting on it now and I was reflecting on it in January because was I moved to London in January 2011 which is 10 years ago and I left London five years ago so I moved over to London for that role with the Olympics and my first kind of multi-sport event role which was kind of a change in career pathway for me and brought me onto this kind of what I call the events roller coaster you know something that you get on and you have the absolute uh one of the biggest highs you can get in terms of the the ride you go on there can be quite a lot of lows along the way or the uh, and in particular when the event is finished but something about it makes you want to jump right on there again and move on to the next one and and that took me on kind of a couple of different roles in that kind of event event world a role with uh, GB Basketball which was the equivalent kind of our Basketball Ireland as head of operations but particularly focused on their high performance teams and the high performance piece of the sport uh, then a move to Baku, Azerbaijan to work on the European Games again as a as a competition manager for 3-on-3 three three basketball which was the first time 3-on-3 three three was going to be played as part of a kind of multi-sport games and it was on being considered for the Tokyo Olympics at that time as well so there was a lot kind of riding on how it would work in the multi-sport environment Um, Baku led me on to a role with FIBA the International Basketball Federation and I moved to Germany and worked for FIBA as a competition manager for Europe for uh, two years and I got kind of the event itch again and it led me to kind of the last uh, most weird and exciting place I probably worked uh, a little city called Ashkabat in Turkmenistan where I worked on that well-known event that everybody will know the European or the Asian indoor and martial arts games 2017 and I was a cluster manager which meant I looked after a number of sports so I had seven Seven sports in kind of my cluster and they varied from three on three basketball to swimming to tennis to indoor athletics to bowling to chess uh, and track cycling and uh, really looked after kind of the delivery of those of those sports and the competition and setup of those sports for the event Um, I was kind of getting tired of being on the event roller coaster at that stage, and I was keeping an eye on Ireland and what was coming up or potentially available in Ireland. Not thinking there'd ever be many opportunities to host a major event in Ireland because we don't host that many major events. But one was advertised uh, the World Paris Swimming European Championships in Dublin, uh, scheduled for 2018, and it was. I applied for it while I was in Turkmenistan. I interviewed for it in Turkmenistan, and I got offered the role. The only downside was it meant I couldn't finish out my contract in Turkmenistan, but actually the reward was greater in that I was going to get to return back home to Ireland, look about kind of maybe settling down a little bit in Ireland, and get the opportunity to run an event in Ireland, which I never really thought was going to be possible. So did that event. And at the same time, well, you know, decided I needed to go back to uni and do a, do a postgrad. So I did a master's in sports management. And really, that was to try and see what other type of roles. You know, I've kind of done the event roles now, haven't worked in Ireland in 10 years. And I need to reintroduce myself to kind of what's happening in sport internationally and nationally to see where, where I need to kind of direct my pathway now to be. Um, So I did that part-time as I was working for the event. We put on a a great event and it was a huge success. And I then moved into a role that was kind of another operations management role uh, at our national sports campus. Uh, And it's the kind of national campus in Dublin that uh, has the National Aquatic Centre, an indoor arena, Uh, various number of pitches and um, facilities for high performance training, uh, indoor training for gymnastics centre, badminton high performance centre and all of those sort of things and I kind of got that role probably having been based on campus and understanding what was going on there Um, and then I've I've moved roles again actually quite recently Um, so I've just started Uh, in September, end of September, 2020, with Sport Ireland. uh, And my current role there with Sport Ireland is Director for Governance and Strategy. And for those of you listening who don't know, Sport Ireland is that statutory agency for sport in Ireland. Um, It gets its function from the government and from legislation, the statutes, and it's the authority tasked with the development of sport across um Ireland and that includes everything from participation in sport high performance sport coaching and the development of the Sport Ireland campus so they the company I did work for it's a subsidiary company of Sport Ireland um as you know so that that's where I am now that's what I'm doing I, I think I got into the role and I, I know I got into the role based on my master's so I did my master's in sports management and for my um master's dissertation I particularly focused on the governance of sport and the governance of high performance sport looking at kind of a blueprint for what does good governance look like what does effective governance in the sports sector look like and how can you improve your performance based on improving your governance or your governance framework Um, so I hope that gives a a little bit of a flavor of kind of my varied career to date uh, and brings us up to my current role and kind of the, as I say, the the turns and twists in the road that I took to get to this current role.
0: Wow. That's a lot of information that, uh, honestly, I didn't know some of that information and I've known you for a few years. Uh, When you think about your experience, I mean, you have done event management, you've done, it sounds like, facility management, you've done governance work, and you've lived in places I can't even pronounce. So, uh, and most people that are hearing, you know, the podcast probably are like, where's Turkmenistan? You know, like, you know, there are certain things that, yeah, uh, yeah, that's very interesting. Um, Regarding, as a question I had, and you brought up the GAA earlier, and, yes. and for anyone, okay, for anyone that uh, doesn't know about the Gaelic Games, and this, this would be pretty much most of our uh, folks that are listening here in the United States, but can you share a little bit with the audience about the Gaelic Games and the GAA and its importance in Ireland?
1: Yeah, to be honest, Tim, it's like kind of, the it's part of our culture, it's part of our heritage, it, it, it's our national games, and there's a few various strands of Gaelic games. So there's Gaelic football, which, you know, it, depending on what county you're from, you can be a stronghold in either Gaelic football or hurling, which is kind of the other main sport. And then the female equivalents to those is ladies Gaelic football and camogie. Uh, and then also in the family, there's handball. And it's not like Olympic handball. It is Irish handball. It's played with a small ball against the wall. Uh, But like all of those form strands of what is the GAA. And the GAA is an organisation that actually exists in every club and county across the country. And there's great rivalry at both levels, like your club level and your county level. And the one kind of key piece that you know, sometimes gets lost when you talk about it and against other sports is that it's a completely amateur association. So people play the sport for the love of their club and the love of their county. You don't get to pick and choose which I'm going to go and play with the best club or the best county. You play with those because that's the parish you were born in, the area you came from, and the county that you're you're from. Um, and I'm from Mayo, a proud, very proud footballing county background. Um, We haven't won the All-Ireland since 1951. Uh, We've got to the All-Ireland final on numerous occasions and I've been lucky enough and fortunate enough to be in Crow Park to see Mayo lose many an All-Ireland final or go to replay uh, in my short career but I always what resonates with me is my dad was one years old when Mayo last won the all Ireland, so he doesn't ever remember them winning it in his lifetime and there's a little bit of a story in terms of a curse put on that 1951 winning team when they were coming home from Dublin with Sam McGuire, which is the trophy you win if you win the all Ireland, and they were crossing the Shannon there was a funeral and a hearse ahead of them and for some reason, they overtook the hearse and the um, chief pawbearer put a curse on the team that pretty much said until every single one of the 1951 team are dead, Mayo won't win another All-Ireland. There's two of them still alive and they're under 24-hour watch down in Kerry, as far as we know, to make sure that Mayo don't win another All-Ireland. But actually, it's such a huge part of our culture. I, I, I played ladies Gaelic football and I played for my county. I represented my county and I played in an All-Ireland final. I played in Crow Park and won in All-Ireland. So I'm one of the lucky male people who can say I do have an All-Ireland medal because there's few and far between uh, out there. But the ladies the ladies have done quite well in terms of the the um, silverware and the the trophies in terms of that. And I... I've been fortunate enough to play at that top level, which is county level for, for your, for your team.
0: Yeah. Uh, One of my, I'm a big uh, facilities and event junkie. And uh, one of the, my big bucket list items is to be in Croke park for, uh, for all Ireland championships for Gaelic football and for hurling. I I just, because for anyone listening uh, you're talking about eighty. Was it 85,000 plus that uh, are in Crow Park? Yeah, it
1: holds 85,000 people. We probably fit in 83,000 plus on on All-Ireland Final Day. I don't know will we ever see the likes again with COVID and social distancing and all the rest of it, but it is a magical, magical experience to be in Crow Park on All-Ireland Final Day. And I've been fortunate enough to be there for both the football and the hurling because I missed out. I did have a little job there. When I came back from Ireland, I worked actually for Crow Park and I had a summer. The summer of 2006 uh, involved me working uh, for Crow Park. And I got to, it was a year that uh, Mayo actually did get to an All-Ireland Final again. And we we were um, a couple of minutes into an All-Ireland Final and Kerry had two goals put past us. So I don't like to relive it very much, but the semifinal was a magical experience. We beat Dublin. In the semi-final, who were up by seven points at half time and we came back to beat them. So, but it's it's an unreal experience to be in Crow Park on All Ireland final day. It's hard to describe it, and it means so much to anyone who's kind of been brought up in the GAA. Ethos as well,
0: yeah, and I know I know that uh, for anyone listening, if you get a chance to go Google it. Uh, There's some great YouTube videos out there on Gaelic football and hurling, and there are some incredibly exciting and physical sports and skillful sports, I might add, too. And so go check that out. Um, Here's a question for you, Sinead, and it's pertaining to the title of the podcast. And of course, you've been all over the place again, places I can barely pronounce um, and maybe even have a hard time finding on the map. But in the time that you've been in your career, over the last 20 years. When you think about people who have held the ladder for you to climb to greater success, to the place where you're at now, who are some of those people?
1: Yeah, and I I really like this analogy you have for holding the ladder um, that forms kind of the basis for this podcast. And I, I was reflecting on this question when I was listening to others and how other people answered it. And it makes you really think about the important people Um, who have held the ladder for me and who've held the ladder for anyone who's listening. It makes you reflect on that question, I think, yourself. Um, I think initially that holding of the ladder does relate to your upbringing, your environment, your home environment, your friends. uh, And for me, particularly my family and my parents, like they're the first uh, kind of circle that give you the opportunity to participate in sports and therefore help to develop that natural passion you have for sport that makes you want to pursue a career in sport. Um, So, you know, for me, I think back and we had to get the bus to school. As I said, I lived kind of in a rural area and we, we had to get the bus to school. And to be involved in sport, you had to be able to stay on after school to train. And that meant your parents had to be able to pick you up or somebody had to be able to pick you up. And I had three sisters and music, sport, any other activity you could be doing, it wasn't always easy for my mother and my father to actually, you know, come in and pick you up an hour later when the bus was going to drop you home, and they didn't have to leave home to get you. So I think that's key: is to try and say that without them nurturing probably that passion I had for sport, it wouldn't have happened. And it was much easier to. Have me play GAA, so that that sport I'm talking about at that time was basketball, which is something I picked up in secondary school. But for GAA, it's played in the lo- local clubhouse, the local pitch, and you're just left there because you're brought down and other games are going on. It, it was kind of more organic to play GAA than it was to play anything else. Um, I also think that the key to um, holding that ladder is, you know, understanding you have to get so far with on your own convictions as well. Like luckily, I think a ladder is one of those tools that doesn't necessarily need to be held initially, but you're limited by how high you can go or how clear your vision is when you're kind of standing up on that ladder. Yeah. And love
0: that. I think, love that, man. Seriously. That's awesome.
1: Yeah. Like I think you have to be willing to carry your own ladder a little bit for a little for a while as well. Um, but then when you have people to support you and that person that's holding the ladder at the bottom sometimes means you can go higher or they can look at what you're doing and see a different perspective. And you have to be willing to listen to them um, willing to hear them, willing to make your own mistakes and find your own pathway. Um, and I think you'll see from kind of my introduction there, I've taken a lot of different twists along the way. And it was people who had maybe a different perspective than I had. Certainly even that first jump to go to London to work the Olympic Games. There was a lot of people who like kind of said to me, oh, I had just bought a house in Dublin. I was actually getting ready to kind of settle in Dublin. And they were like, are you going to just up sticks and go? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm going for it. I don't want to look back going, I wonder what if, if I didn't go and get the chance to work what's the greatest sporting event ever. Um, but yeah, you, you know, there's a couple of couple of things around that, but there's a couple of people, I suppose, because your question is based on, you know, who are those people? And there's a couple of people, I think, that weren't to mention in terms of me getting my in to the sports sector, uh, or indeed making changes to the pathway I was on kind of along the way. Uh, I mentioned my parents and my my sisters and my kind of family they you know beyond doubt obviously they they've set you on a direction that you 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 go on um second for me were kind of sports coaches i think those are the first people you interact with that actually nurture your passion for sport uh, i had a really great coach uh for basketball Frances dunn and she you know, gave us opportunities to go on basketball camps to Dungarvan, on various different things. That events now, the Basketball Ireland run that I would have had no idea at the time who ran these or or, or what they did. But this was where you went, where everybody was basketball mad, um, and also like GAA coaches along the way as well. I think I was reflecting on this as well, and I was thinking. I'm sorry to say that the school system in Ireland didn't play more of a part for me. And in particular, the primary school system where PE or physical education don't feature as part of the um, required cur- cur- curriculum or didn't certainly when I was in school. And it's funny, like I was in kind of a very what I would call old school, primary school and um, where the boys got to do sports and went outside and it was expected that the girls were to do sewing and knitting inside at the same time. And something you can well imagine I wasn't a huge fan of and made my voice heard even at that young age of realizing that gender diversity was something that I didn't know the term for, but it was certainly not right that I had to sit inside and do sewing while the lads got to go outside and kick a football around or play basketball. Uh, so I did cause a bit of a stir by demanding that I should get to go outside and they also should get to sit inside and do sewing. Um, I think my teacher had to have a word with my parents to say, listen, uh, you, know, you need to talk to Sinead about this. But my dad actually would have backed me up on that and said, well, she's right. And my dad obviously had four girls and he didn't want us not to have the opportunities that boys might have. So he always would have said... Don't let anybody tell you, you can't do whatever you want to do. Um, so I don't think the teacher got very far in trying, to, in trying to say they needed to have a word with me on that one. Um, I think my first big break in terms of holding the ladder, I, I said, was kind of that first real job with Basketball Ireland. And there's a couple of people uh, that made a difference to me in getting that role. I think the CEO of Basketball Ireland at the time, for certain, she was kind of key to um, mentoring me in terms of what it was to work in a national governing body. But equally, my fellow work colleagues around the office were key because that's your first real learnings of how does everybody else do it? Because uh, you, you feel like you're being a bit of a fraud, I would say at times, especially when you're starting out and you're looking to others to, to replicate what you see them doing well and maybe to not do what you see them doing not so well. And I, the bets were on when I started the job with Basketball Ireland, there was a couple of people and they, they told me later, uh, I started the role in September and the bets were on that I wasn't going to last until Christmas um, and it was because when I started, I started in one role, which was kind of a women in sport lead and then the competitions officer at the time handed in her notice And I got asked to kind of fill in while they were figuring out what to do with her position. And I certainly filled in and my Bible at the time was the basketball rules and regulations. And I'll I'll never forget it, 2006, the start of that national league season, which would have kicked off in October. So I kind of was shoehorned in in September, trying to learn the rules and regulations, all of these various people that were running clubs and I will never forget uh, not licensing two players for Langford Falcons, a team in men's division one, and there being uproar. And I was going, but the rules say that there was a residency rule around how long the player needed to be in the country before they could play. And yeah, the rule says this, and I didn't provide the license because they didn't comply with the rule. The team withdrew from the league. There had to be a reshuffle of fixtures but I have to say my my CEO backed me in terms of actually saying yeah well you couldn't make any other decision there and it was a, it was a bit of a baptism of fire i would say to working in the ng the national governing body sector um i think the volunteers involved in the sport also held the ladder a lot during those early early years they were a tough crowd to please and you learn quite quickly that it was damn near impossible 50% of the people, even 50% of the time. And, you know, as soon as you got your head around that, I made a conscious effort that actually the Bible is the rules and regulations. I've got this on my side and I can use this, but I will be as open, as fair and as transparent as I can be in the decision-making so that even if those decisions go, don't go down so well, people can see why you came to that decision in the first place. Um, so I think I think certainly in that early part, it was it was those learnings from, you know, parents, work colleagues, volunteers themselves in the sport. And in particular, the CEO and a couple of key people outside of the CEO. There was a there was a guy on the board of Basketball Ireland at the time, and he he definitely took me under his wing a little bit. And there was a a chair of the men's Super League, Pat Duffy, who you may have heard mentioned during your time, super super guy. He's passed away, and you know, uh, may he rest in peace. But to see a chairman in action or chairperson in action that really taught you how to deliver in a boardroom as well were were key learnings for for me.
0: Wow, and and you you brought up something I was going to just ask about pertaining to your current role with sport ireland and the governance side of things do you think that one of the biggest challenges you face in your job in that role is having to understand that some people are going to go come to you and not be happy with you based on the decisions you have to make even though you have those standards in a book is that one of the biggest challenges
1: Absolutely. And it's always going to be one of the biggest challenges, in particular, when it comes to governance and type of governance that is rolled out across countries. Um, You know, most of the governance codes we look at these days are principles based codes. So there's kind of a, a framework there. There's a toolkit there. But actually, it's up to the governing body or the organization or the club to decide, well, how am I going to apply that principle within my organization? And equally there's like recommended practices that goes along with each of those principles. And the principles remain the same. you like, you're looking at, you know, leading our organization, exercising control over our organization, being open and transparent, uh, operating with integrity and, you know, nurturing the reputation of the sport. Um, and yes, like there's such a varying, uh, lying there in terms of actually what one organization wants to do versus another, but there is also such a connectivity between the sector. And when we see governance failures in the sector, it affects the entire system. And we see that regardless of if it's at a national level or an international level, when there's scandal and issues in sport, everything gets tarnished with the one brush there. Like it's it's really, really, you know, we, you know, clear to see that those anti-doping scandals or corruption scandals, even at the highest level of the sport, they just have an impact on everyone involved in that system. This is the systematic impact I think can be huge. And, and sport has taken a little bit longer than the commercial sector to come to the table with regards to the professionalism now required to run sport like a business uh, and actually to adopt, you know, these governance codes and frameworks and toolkits that are being made available because it's what's required. It's what's required from our stakeholders and it's what's required from society and even though the sport has still autonomy and the board of directors have the responsibility for running and overseeing the running of the sport and management implementing that there's much more scrutiny around how sport and organizations are run and organized now than there would have been even when I was starting off earlier in my career.
0: Right. Um, One of the questions I have kind of goes back to what you were saying regarding when you became an employee with Basketball Ireland, I believe you said 2006, is that correct? Correct, yeah. Yeah, and you you, you said, well, you were learning all the, the rules and regulations. I mean, do you kind of have to do the same thing in your role with the NGBs or national governing bodies? Like, say you have a sport like volleyball, which isn't like a huge sport in Ireland, uh, and you compare volleyball to um to basketball or to other sports that you are working with, uh, in your role. I mean, are you kind of doing the same thing in your role? Um,
1: in a way, yes. Like I kind of am one step removed from needing to know all the ins and outs of the sport, but I'm definitely responsible for overseeing the implementation of the, um, governance code for sport. So it became a policy decision in 2018 when the governed, government published the national sports policy. And it's, it's outlined in the national sports policy that all of these organizations must have adopted the governance code for sport by the end of 2021. So by December of this year, the 100 odd bodies that Sport Ireland fund must have fully adopted and embraced the governance code for sport. Now we're sitting at 30% adopted 70% on the adoption journey right now. So that's quite a few organizations uh, that still need to fully embed some of those practices and principles of the code into the workings of their organization. And it's a big ask because it says, you'll know yourself from being involved in the sports sector here, Tim. There's a, there's a big difference between some of your voluntary, small organizations versus the, you know, bigger organizations with bigger staff and larger budgets and then you throw COVID into the mix these last kind of year and a half and actually it's put extra pressures on the sports sector full stop but the deadline is the deadline it's not changing I suppose it's part of the reason why my role was was created and it was kind of a new role that was created um but it's looking to um get everybody to kind of meet the the minimum standards that they need to meet. And then let's look at this governance code for sport and see, does it need changing? Does it need tweaking? Like we've taken over a code, which was a, a CVC code. It was the code for the community voluntary and charitable organizations. Sport Ireland took it over by the requirement of the national sports policy. We now Will have the opportunity to make it more specific for sport, which I think is a good thing because there are nuances and differences and challenges in sport that we sometimes don't see in some of the other sectors. But the principles, I think, will still remain the same. The requirements of the code might need to change or be tweaked. Or, you know, things like gender diversity, I would say, probably needs to be spelled out a little bit more, like, you know, getting that. Equality on board of directors, on committees within organisations, um, it's something that maybe needs some some figures and some minimum standards attached to it. Whereas right now in the code, it doesn't it doesn't spell those out or doesn't call those out.
0: So you were talking about uh, how there's a lot of intricacy in what you were just talking about pertaining to. Adding different things, and and your job sounds like a job that you really have to be very detail oriented, and that kind of leads to the next question, and it's regarding skills that are necessary or essential uh, for success as a sport professional, and again, uh, at at any level of sport or any uh, segment of the sport industry, and um, what are some skills that you think are essential? Uh, yeah,
1: I, you know, there's so many that I, I would think of when, I, when, when you asked me this question. And I, I really think that working in the event sector l- lended itself to me developing quite a lot of my skills and honing my skills. Because I think to work in events, you need to develop a, a mix of what I would call hard and soft skills. Uh, you need to be great at dealing with people. You need to be great at dealing with potentially tricky situations as well as being very creative and resourceful for those plan B, plan C, plan D that might need to be rolled out or put into effect. On the other hand, you need to be super organized. Like we have this thing in events that's called the DCAS, the Detailed Competition Activity Schedule. And it details to the second what is due to happen on the field of play in the lead up to Tip off or kick off, or whatever is the designated start time for your sport or your event. So, I would have had a three hour DCAS for a game of basketball that does not, that, that starts zero zero is the tip off of the basketball game. The three hours are all the things that need to happen before that basketball game ticks off. So, I think those organizational skills and admin skills really got honed in my kind of event work. Uh, You do certainly need to have a a head for figures when it comes to working with budgets, Um, but also I would say uh, you need to develop some quick wit and be very comfortable in making decisions under pressure, all of which I see as really, really key transferable skills and skills that you can bring into any role or any other job that you're doing. And then if I look kind of more strategic at it, I would say, if you want to be a success in the sports sector or make a job or craft a career out of being a sports professional, perseverance and resilience are two key traits that strike me of what I think I needed to succeed. A little bit of confidence, and not overconfident, but you need to have that confidence and determination to continue to persevere and bounce back from any knock, knockdowns or knockbacks you get to say, no, I'm, I'm going to do this. Like I got told so many times when I came straight out of my degree that you need to go back to college and do something else. You are never go like, what are you going to do in sports? What jobs are available? And I was like, I am going to work in sports and I am going to continue because this is where my passion is and this is what I want to do I might not have known exactly what in sport I wanted to work in but I knew if you know if you've got the passion you're halfway there like I can get up every day and I can look back even on those last 10 years where I worked in so many different places and countries and be like I had a ball I had a blast because I enjoyed what I did and I was passionate about what I did and I was working in a in a field that I have a love for, regardless of what the sport is.
0: Wow. Well, and that kind of brings me to the, the one thing about when I think about uh, skills um, and you brought up perseverance, but uh, I also think that having the ability to do what you just talked about, I will, I am having positive self-talk, uh, is so critical in this industry, but man, it's really critical in the world. I mean, and I also think that I always tell my uh, anyone I'm mentoring, whether it's the students I teach or anyone I coach, that can't cannot be a word that it's actually a contraction, but it can't be something that you use and expect and you expect to be successful. Um, do you feel the same way?
1: I would agree, Tim. And actually, I think I touched on it when I said the kind of mantra my dad had was don't let anybody tell you that there's something you can't do. Like really that sort of positive affirmation that you can do anything you want to do. You just have to find the way to do it and what's the right way for you. And I I, I agree with you in terms of actually that positive, you know, positive focus, positive outlook. And I've noticed myself later now in life, consider that a little bit more than I would have earlier in my career. Um, I'm a great believer in um, seeing yourself like in the role. Like even if I'm going for interview, I'm already talking about it in the present tense that when I get this role, here's what I would do. Or I'm already envisaging or visioning myself in that role or in that circumstances and how I would deal with things uh, in that situation. So I'm a very positive person naturally, but I fully believe that actually the more positive we are about the circumstances in front of us or dealing with the situation that we might not want to deal with, the easier it is to actually deal with it when you then do have to. And I think it's a little bit came from events as well, where we do a lot of Role playing and situational planning and uh, scenarios where you're always talking about the what ifs, and that really prepares you for being able to deal with the ones you haven't even talked about because you've you've always realised that the road won't go smoothly. There are things that will crop up and things that will happen, and it's how you can manage yourself to deal with them, and your team to deal with them that makes the difference.
0: Right, and. It kind of leads uh, regarding the next question. You know, you've been you've been all over, and uh, and I can relate to that because I'm a, a kid from South Alabama in the United States, and lived in. I've had, I've had eleven driver's licenses, I believe. I think maybe it's ten now. But uh, you know, moving a lot of different places that means that you've obviously made connections along the way that have helped you get into those roles. So when you think of networking, how was important was that in getting you those opportunities through the years?
1: Uh, for me, the answer to this one is unanimous. Uh, you know, any advice when people ask me, any advice for how I could make it in this industry? The advice for me is network. Network plus a passion. Uh, a passion for the tough graft and a good work ethic. Uh, And like then people say, "Oh, what do you mean networking? What does that mean? And I said, it's building connections from one person to another. uh, The answer, you know, can vary how you actually build those connections, but it all leads to the same goal. You have somebody else in your corner that you can call on depending on what the role it is you're going for, what, uh, you know, you might You might need to talk to somebody about something else. Uh, And eventually it builds into, you know, the reliance on these people for even the next job, the next role, the advice you might need in your current role, because you're like, oh, I worked with Sharon and she actually did something on governance. I remember seeing someplace along the way that she did this, that, or the other. Um, Every conversation, on the way to a career in sport is a potential opportunity. And you have to see it as that. Every person you meet and every conversation you have, there is a potential opportunity in that. Sometimes people don't see it because they don't realize the value of your network and the value of your system. And I think confidence plays a a role in helping you grow those networking skills as well as the actual network. Um, but it can also play, you know, a potential problem in you know, you plateauing and saying, I get complacent, I'm you know, I'm happy now with where I am, I don't actually need to try as hard to get to maybe work the room if I go to an event or to talk to people that I don't know or you know don't need to talk to. And I would say there's where you've lost, because actually if you don't go. To an event and it's harder now because we're not going to events and it is harder in this kind of virtual system where you're on zoom all the time or you're on a teams meeting and the meeting you know somebody hits the leave meeting and everybody is gone you don't have that organic uh kind of relationship building piece that you over the cup of coffee or over the chat at the beginning or over just catching somebody's eye when a speaker says something and you see yourself nodding You see somebody else nodding, and you're a bit like going, I need to talk to that person, uh, you know. Uh, Or you have a couple of people earmarked because you've seen the attendance list and you're like going, I actually really need to talk to A, B, and C. Um, And you want to get the relationship with that person uh, because, you know, essentially you might decide, I don't need to work the room anymore or talk to all these people. You might go for the next role and realize the person that got it actually talked to those four or five people and ultimately it, it, it was in their favor so i would say absolutely um confidence and conscientiousness to the opportunity as uh, that every interaction or opportunity to interact provides you with
0: great advice the last question and i ask this of all of my guests how do you currently hold a ladder for others in your role?
1: Yeah, so in my current role, uh, it's probably a little bit harder for me to answer because I've started my current role during COVID-19 and during lockdown, and I haven't yet built up kind of those face-to-face relationships with people. And I think you know that, that face-to-face um, relationship is, is where it matters. Because I think one of the pieces of advice I would give is, you know, you have to build an authentic and real connection with somebody. Relationships are key for being able to hold the ladder for somebody else. They feel that you know them. You know that you know them because you've invested in getting to know them. And they're comfortable asking you for advice. And that's what I love is when people come to me to ask me for advice because i i go to lots of other people still all the time but you there's something there's something warm about somebody coming to you looking for advice and them now thinking that you're able to offer them this in insight but i think it's down to the relationship you've built with them and making them feel comfortable i also think aligned to that um building that real connection is earning people's trust you know do what you say you're going to do. And that's another thing my mom and dad would have been big on. You know, don't us and plomos is a word we would use to sort say, you're shirking your responsibility. You're going to say something just to get them off your back for the minute, but you have no intention of doing it. I would always say actions speak louder than words. You do what you say you're going to do, and that earns vital trust with people that, you know, Will respect you for that and be like, yeah. She always actually, she if she said she will come back to you, she'll come back to you. Or if she said she'll do that, she will do that. And uh, nothing worse than a person that says, you know, I'll do something for you, and you don't hear, you don't hear from them. I think recognizing strengths uh, in others is also key because sometimes we can't see our own strengths or we get a bit muddled maybe in what our strengths are. But when another person points them out, you the satisfaction you get from realizing somebody else has said you are such a good organizer or you're a real good listener or I love the way you communicate you grow an inch or two when somebody else points those out to you and that inch or two helps somebody else move up the ladder a little bit more and a little bit closer to where they want to be and I suppose my last my last tip or my last piece of advice in holding the ladder for somebody else is encourage like encouragement None of us got very far without the encouragement we got from others. Um, Some people know what they want to do, but they need to hear that advice from somebody else. Uh, And I think it's important to encourage people to aim maybe a little bit higher than they thought they might aim. Like those stretch goals uh, are important for people. Some people know what the goal is that they want to get and they need help breaking it down and seeing how do we, how do we bite, bite off little chunks and help you get there? And they, they just need somebody maybe who's, who's um, crafted their own kind of path and know some of those, some of the ways to break those down to, to help them to break it down. Um, you know, sometimes they just need a listening ear. So I think in all of that, the communication comes down to you being a good listener and me being a good listener to others. I really love to step back sometimes and say, my team were able to do that without me getting a mention. I think I've done a good job when I've when I've been responsible for something, but I, I don't get mentioned in it. I really do enjoy the satisfaction of seeing my team do well and my team get the recognition they deserve for doing the job well, even though you know in the background you've played your part.
0: Well, and I want to jump on that real quick. One of the uh, reasons why... I, well, and I read about holding a ladder a few years ago, and um, one of the things that my wife Candy and I are really big on is trying our best to hold the ladder for others to climb to greater heights than they ever thought possible, regardless of whether they thank us or not. Um, And I think that's what you just said, you know, you you don't necessarily need the credit, you know, and I I think there have been times, even in my experience in, in my volunteer work, even in uh, other countries, uh, Ireland being one of them, where uh, you know I had an impact on something changing and uh, maybe didn't necessarily, wasn't recognized for it outwardly, but that's not the point of doing it, right? I mean, the reason why you do it is because, you, first of all, it's your job. If, if you're in a position, position like you're in, right? Or if you're a volunteer, you do it because you have an interest in making a difference in the industry, in the world that you're trying to help. And I think that's the reason why we really lean into that philosophy, Kenny and I do. And it's really made a big difference. And so it's neat to hear that that's how you feel too.
1: Yeah, I agree with you, Tim. I think you're doing it for the wrong reason if you're looking for the recognition out of it. Um, I think the satisfaction for me is definitely seeing somebody else achieve Knowing that you've played a little part in that, uh, but you've given them the confidence, or the strength, or the encouragement, or you know, building up enough trust that they feel like they can make the steps, they can make those steps by themselves. Uh, knowing, as we as we as we come back to the ladder analogy, knowing actually that you're there at the bottom of the ladder, holding it if they need it. You you still have the support, and you still have the perspective that they sometimes don't have um and it's a bit like i said at the beginning i think you you hold your own ladder for a little while but actually you can't beat the support and the perspective you can get or the you know you can get higher you can get further with the painting if somebody's going to hold it for, hold it for you
0: wow that's great and you've you've offered so many great uh thoughts in different perspective on all these things, which what I love about the, the interviews for the podcast is all the varied ways and very perspectives, you know, and I, I appreciate you sharing your own, uh, Sinead, how would you like to close today's podcast?
1: I just would like to say, thank you, Tim. Like we, we met each other through kind of a random encounter as well through basketball Ireland. Uh, I certainly wouldn't be here on this podcast today only for, our involvement in a, in a committee we worked on together. Uh, I delighted to have the opportunity to kind of talk to your listeners and I would encourage everybody to think about um, the opportunity they can give to somebody else in terms of holding that ladder for somebody else or indeed using kind of what the nuggets you learn from these podcasts to reflect on where you're going with your own career and see, can you, can somebody else hold the ladder for you? You know, are you stuck in a bit of a rush and just need some? Because we all, it goes through ebbs and flows and we all need different things at different times. And don't lose sight uh, just because some parts of your life or career are more challenging than others. Don't lose sight of there always being people around you that are able to support you and, you know, help you get back on that path. Uh, it's not an easy field to work in. Uh, But the rewards are the rewards are high and it's a it's an interesting um, and super rewarding field to work in in terms of the sports sector. And it's so varied that, you know, my career is not done yet. And who knows in 20 years time, what more I'll have added to my kind of achievements or countries that I've uh, lived in and worked in and have have had the opportunity to. Meet more interesting people along the way, too.
0: Yeah, and and uh, it's you know, I consider you a friend, obviously, and working uh in the elite performance committee uh with Basketball Ireland. But I, I just think it's uh, the information you provide today has been essential, and and I am so thankful for you being a part of this. So, thanks so very much.
1: Thanks, Sam, appreciate it.
0: All right, so thanks a- well,
1: yeah, as we say, yeah. in, and. go ra- <laughs> mila-
0: <laughs> thank you thanks so much for listening to this week's episode for Sinead Gordon I'm Tim Rice I look forward to seeing you again next week for another episode of the holding a ladder in sport and leadership podcast have a great week thanks for listening and until next week I challenge you to hold a ladder for someone to climb to greater heights than they ever thought possible.